There are two scripture readings this morning from the New Testament. The first is Philippians 3, verses 12 through 17, and then 1 Thessalonians 4, 1. So we will begin with Philippians 3, verses 12 through 17. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Brothers, Join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Okay, First Thessalonians 4.1 Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. This is the word of the Lord. few Sundays left with you all, and we are not doing a strict sermon series of any sort, but just reflecting on a few core overarching encouragements and exhortations as I get ready to leave and you guys get ready to transition. Let's pray as we turn now to God's Word. God and Father, pray that you would be with us as your people, Lord, that we might be people who meet you in your Word and are changed that you would be with me as I seek to proclaim your truth today, that you would use me, though I am a frail instrument, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord. Amen. So, in C.S. Lewis's novel, The Last Battle, which is the last of the books of the Chronicles of Narnia, at the end of The Last Battle, uh, you, we have really like the whole story of Narnia and everything coming to an end, and without going into all of the background, the, the children that are at the center of things, um, Peter and Lucy and Edmund and Eustace and some of the other characters, uh, have fled through this doorway because Narnia itself is um, dying and the sun has gone dark and this giant is tearing the stars down from the skies and there's all these images of the book of Revelation, but they have passed through this doorway and it's sort of as if they're in Narnia again except that it's light and they're watching through the doorway as old Narnia is destroyed. And then as that ends and they close the doorway, Aslan the lion that stands for Jesus says to them, uh, come further up, come further in. And he turns and just takes off running. And after a little bit of discussion, because Lewis is fond of having his characters have lots of little discussions along the way, they start going after Aslan. And they start running, and then they start flying, and there's all of these stages where they sort of press somehow deeper and more fully into Narnia, and they meet these characters that had died in the older books and see places that were destroyed, and at every step along the journey, they have this encounter, and it's beautiful, and then they're told further up and further in, and they press on even more, and then everything is somehow changed, and it's not even just Narnia, but it's somehow England, which is where they're from in the real world that's, that they're in as well, and, but more 
real and truer than England was. And again, they hear the further up and further in. And finally, it's revealed that they had died on earth and that um, Narnia had come to an end and that they were, in an essence, entering into, um, yeah, into life after death. But what Lewis stresses in the way it unfolds in those final pages is that that is not an ending, but instead a beginning and a continual invitation to come further up and further in. And so he ends the novel like this. He says, for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. So that's beautiful. (laughs) I actually get kind of choked up always even just reading those last pages of that book. Why am I sharing that this morning? The thing to understand about what happens in the way that Lewis tells that story at the end of the last battle is that he's actually making two related points that are common themes for him. One point is about heaven and is about life after death. And what Lewis is trying to challenge there is this idea that many Christians have that heaven is sort of boring, static perfection, which is to say that, yes, when we die and are with Jesus and are raised and live in new creation— We are made perfect in one sense, in the sense that we are sinless, that we no longer struggle with sin and temptation. But in another sense, we are still very much human beings with all of the limitations and opportunities for discovery that brings, and that eternity is an eternity of growth. That, that, you know, that the way we should think about it is as continually for a billion, billion years coming to understand God better and know him more and love him more and understand the world better and, and get to know each other better and that we are eternally growing, that each chapter is better, as Lewis says, than the one that came before it. And so he's challenging that view because without that view, honestly, heaven and the life after this one seems kind of boring and dull. And that's, I think, where you get a lot of people with this sense of, Why would I want to go there? So eternity, he's saying, is an eternity of growth and discovery. But the reason that point is really important for Lewis, he makes this point in several of his other books, is that 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 therefore then informs what we're supposed to understand about this life as well. That if our eternity is one of growth, of being called further up and further in forever, then that's supposed to be true of these decades and years that we spend on earth as well. That this life is supposed to be a continuation of growth and going further up and further in that then naturally extends into eternity. That we should be growing to know God more and growing to be more like Jesus and growing to know his world better and ourselves and growing to know each other better in ways that honor God in this life because that's what we're created for in the life to come. And the reason that is so important to Lewis is because he recognizes what I think is one of the deadly lies that afflict many of us as Christians. One of the deadliest lies, which is the lie that we have arrived. The lie that we have arrived in terms of our faith and walk with Jesus Christ. That we are there. Or, what's more common, I think, is that we're like 95% of the way there. 
Like, that, that's the way that it normally manifests, right? Yes, we're all like, well, you know, we're not quite there with Jesus, but mostly we've got this figured out. Mostly we've discovered what there is to discover. Mostly we've been conformed to the likeness of Jesus, and we're just working on the margins. That idea stands in stark contrast with what the Apostle Paul said in our readings today. And just, I'm going to read, you know, from Philippians 3, 12. But remember, this is the Apostle Paul, right? Like, you know, the most successful missionary in all of history, wrote huge chunks of the New Testament. But he says, not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And then in verse 13, he repeats himself again, because he's like, maybe you're you're not going to believe me. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Paul's attitude is to say, I want to make so clear to you that I have not arrived, but that I am pressing on to make Jesus my own. I am going further up and further in, in my walk with Jesus Christ. It's the attitude of Paul. That's the attitude of most of the, the great saints that I have known in my life. I was thinking even as I'm preparing to transition about a few of the people here at Kish. Um, I was especially thinking about like Carol Hackmeister and Warren and Connie McGee, some people who, for different reasons, aren't, you know, I'm not able to even see um, anymore. Some, because they're with Jesus, um, and Connie has transitioned elsewhere. But it was so dear to me to visit with them. And what I always loved about visiting with them was that they were some of the people that were most mindful of and attentive of the things that they didn't know and their need for growth. Like, I have these fond memories of Connie just excitedly pulling out these journals she would keep where she would write down, like, quotes and things she had been reading that she wanted to share with me about what she was learning. And again, she's 80 and in some ways significantly more spiritually mature than me in terms of, like, practical walk with Jesus and super smart, right? You know, like, has learned all these things, spent a lifetime doing it, but her, her sense was very much—I mean, Carol, I remember, would comment to me about how far she felt like she had to go— you know, in, in following Jesus and how actually she felt at her age like she had a lot farther to go than she did as a younger person. They had that clear sense of needing to go further up and further in. The thing that kills that is that lie that we think we have arrived. And so what I want to do today is talk about that lie and challenge it and just speak first to the process of spiritual growth in Scripture the reality and way that scripture pictures us as growing. And then I want to give a few practical encouragements and how we can continue to grow and keep growing. First of all, the process of growth. Being a Christian is always meant to be going further up and further in. Always meant to be growing and learning and becoming more than we are. And the reason I had us read 1 Thessalonians 4.1 is I can think of no better single verse that summarizes that idea of spiritual growth. Paul says this. He says, Finally, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ that as you received from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So he says, you have received Christianity from us and you are living as Christians and you need to do that more and more. Receive it and walk in it and do it more and more. And the reason Paul frames spiritual growth that way, and the way that I think it's important for us to start there, is that in its broad outlines, Christianity is incredibly simple. <laughs> like, it's super simple. All you have to do is 
um, is trust and hope in Jesus Christ. And out of that love, God, with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength, fully and deeply in every way. And then out of that, overflow into love for the people that he's made, living your life, serving and caring for them and honoring them and inviting them to know him. That's all. That's, that's not simple, right? Just trust in Jesus and love God fully and love the people that he's made fully. A 10-year-old can understand that that is Christianity. But of course, on another level, I say, that's simple. <laughs> and most of us, if we've been walking with Jesus, would say, yeah, <laughs> right. Because we recognize that as much as on one level that is a simple calling, on another level, learning how to do that and growing in doing that, and even learning what it means to love God and love people and stuff takes a whole lifetime and more than a lifetime to complete. I think it might be helpful to flesh out that idea of growth by using a related idea in Scripture, which is spiritual maturity. Paul talks about it in Philippians chapter 3. He says, Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. So he's using this idea of maturity, which is the image of like we as human beings grow over time and mature over time to talk about the Christian life. And in fact, the New Testament often uses those images of kind of life stages and growth and maturing to talk about it. So we have believers that are talked about as spiritual infants in places like 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Peter 2. We have children in places like Ephesians 4, young adults in places like 1 John 2, and then mature adults and parents in places like Ephesians 4 and 1 John 2. And it uses all of those same kind of stages that we go through as physically as human beings to try to talk about that call of spiritual growth and that process of maturing spiritually. And so here's, here's what I want to do. To help you get a sense of what Scripture is talking about, I'm going to walk through those stages I want to give some caveats first. One is that um, I'm going to describe the process of spiritual maturity, but that is not a way of describing what Christians are better than other Christians. I think sometimes when people hear this language of maturity, they think that this is about like being a better Christian. And look, here, here's a question. Is a five-year-old or a 50-year-old a better human being? That, that, that doesn't make sense, right? We recognize that human beings move through both of those stages— and, um, and so when we talk about this, we're not saying who's the better Christian, but we are describing a process of growth that we should go through. It's good for a five-year-old to act like a five-year-old, but it's problematic if someone's 50 and is still acting like they're five, and that's what it's trying to speak to. In addition, I'm going to give you four categories. Real life is messy and, you know, and complicated, and people are in between things, and even in my own heart, I feel like I'm more mature in some areas and less mature in others spiritually. But that said— Big picture. I think Christians grow through four stages. The first is newborn Christians. Newborn Christians. And the key feature of being a newborn Christian is that newborns don't do anything for themselves. Um, I mean, which is just true of babies, right? The thing about babies, newborn human beings, is that you have to do everything for them, right? Even when they have to burp, they need help to, to be able to do that. And so newborn Christians are people who have just started in that place in their spiritual journey where they are not doing anything for themselves, but they're looking to others to kind of do all of Christianity for them. And there is nothing wrong with that again. This is where I want to say, like, just like we said, there's nothing wrong with newborn Christians. In fact, it, it's a beautiful thing. In First Peter, Peter says, like newborn infants, 
Long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Right? That's a beautiful image of an, you know, of an infant longing for milk. But of course, newborn Christianity is a big problem if you just stay there. And that's the point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. That's a big criticism for him, right? That the Corinthians have stayed just at that newborn stage. And that is a challenge that I think often in the modern church we struggle with. For a whole bunch of different reasons, I think it presents different ways in different churches, we have a tendency to have an overabundance of newborn Christians, of people who are sort of, have taken that first step of becoming a Christian, but are still looking to, you know, to other people to do all of this stuff spiritually for them, and they haven't started taking ownership themselves. And, and some of those people have been Christians for decades, but have never grown past that point of being newborns. So being a newborn Christian is great and beautiful when it happens, but we want to grow. So the next stage is then what I'm going to call childhood Christians. Um, I'm trying not to say baby Christians and child Christians, which a lot of people do in this way of talking, because I feel like that sounds insulting, and this isn't insulting, because again, it's good to move through these stages. But childhood Christians, the key feature of childhood is that you start to take ownership for your own growth, that you start to take ownership for your own growth, that kids um, are naturally curious, they naturally want to understand and grow in their understanding of the world, kids naturally want to imitate their parents, and kids, as they grow up, want to do things for themselves. I, I mean, that, that was a weird thing for me to adjust to as a parent, but, you know, the fact that my kids are like, I want to, you know, pick out my clothes, I want to, to cook dinner has been a recent thing, which is great as long as they also want to do the dishes. Um, you know, I mean, they, they start to take ownership for, for that part of their own personal growth. Now, importantly, when we talk about those childhood Christians, that doesn't mean that they're necessarily way—that they've grown way more than the newborn Christian, right? Early on in childhood, they're still figuring out the most basic things, but they're starting to say, I want to engage with God's Word. I want to pray myself. I want to serve people. I want to, you know, start to live for Jesus um, in those ways, and I want to learn how to do that myself rather than just expecting that other people will do it for me. And one other note about childhood Christians— is that if you are interacting with someone who's early in that kind of Christian childhood stage, it's a good idea for you, even if you feel like you're more mature, to appreciate the messiness of that stage rather than get frustrated with it, right? So, so kids, again, biologically, we recognize they don't have it all figured out. It's, it's really important in parenting, I think, not to like get angry or discipline your kids just for being children, right? You want to discipline them for sin and disobedience, but you know, they're, they're just learning. Sometimes they make messes just because they don't know how to do things, and you need to be understanding of that. And as um, those sort of young, just starting to grow Christians, they often have a lot of zeal and excitement, and maybe it's not joined with knowledge, or maybe they don't know how to do those things, but you still want to value and appreciate the beauty of them. So you grow up through childhood, and then you have sort of young adult Christians, or teenaged Christians, but teenager isn't really a category in the biblical world because you were kind of an adult when you were when you were that age but uh, scripture speaks of sort of young adults and the key feature of a young adult is that not only have they taken ownership for their growth like children but they're starting to take ownership they're starting to make use of their gifts they're starting to use their gifts to serve other people so children 
are beautiful and they're growing, but they're still fundamentally selfish. <laughs> if you have kids, right? They still tend to view the world as about them, even as they're starting to grow. And what then distinguishes someone emerging into young adulthood is they start to realize that the world is not about them, that it exists for other, other people exist, and that they, in a sense, exist for other people. Um, and so often childhood Christians, while they're growing and it's beautiful, have this attitude that, like, other Christians are there to answer my questions and help me. And the church is there to kind of just inspire me and do stuff for me. And then as they emerge into young adulthood, they start to realize, oh, I'm actually called to serve those people too. And I'm called to serve and use my gifts in the setting of the church. A lot of the learning there about making use of your gifts for young adult Christians is less cookie cutter, less, less the same as it is for childhood Christians. Because a lot of the truths that that young Christians are learning are very kind of just general truths about God and life. Whereas as you start to emerge into who am I and how am I gifted, you're often trying to figure out the specifics. It's why every third grader basically gets the same curriculum, but, you know, 18-year-olds, we let kind of decide what they're going to study in college. Oh, that might be crazy too. But, um, but yeah, they're starting to emerge in that place of saying, I'm going to serve and use my gifts and help and build up. And then the last stage is sort of mature Christians, or in the New Testament, that's often pictured as spiritual parents. And the key feature of Christian maturity is that not only have you, are you doing those other things, you know, growing and using your gifts, but you're starting to take responsibility for the growth of others, that you're starting to look around and actually start to parent other Christians and help them grow. And that means, first of all, that doesn't mean that you've arrived, right? When I say mature Christian, Paul's a mature Christian, and he says, I have not arrived. I'm still growing further up and further in, right? I mean, those saints that are at that place have often a deep sense of all the things they're still learning and growing, but they're looking around, and first of all, they're helping um, people to meet Jesus and experience that spiritual birth and that new birth, which we're going to talk about next week when we talk about God's call to mission. And then alongside that, they're saying, oh, here's this newborn Christian, and I'm going to feed them and help care for them. And here's this Christian who's kind of still a child and learning, and I'm going to help them grow and give them resources to grow. And here's these young adult Christians that are just starting to use their gifts, and I'm going to, to help them discover those gifts and help them find ways to serve and mentor them in those roles. Christian maturity is about, um, just, just sort of like maturity in our world, is about sort of then helping other people to grow up and become who God has created them to be. So that is the process. And again, I want to stress you don't just get to the end of that process, and there's nothing wrong with moving through it. But I lay that out because I would encourage us to reflect on different areas of our life, where we're kind of at in that, and to ask where we need to be growing. Because there's a difference between saying that we're in process, which is great, and then getting stuck and not being in process anymore. So that is that image um, that we are called to continue to grow spiritually in maturity. And again, the big picture reason we're saying that is just to say, when you think about that life cycle, right? It, you might feel like, I haven't arrived. That's the right conclusion, right? You're like, I still need to grow in different ways in maturity and being a parent. That's, that's wonderful. I put that out there for us to say, we haven't arrived, and hallelujah, and let's press on into that and seek to be growing. And to encourage you guys in this season to seek after that kind of growth and not be content um, with where you guys are spiritually, where Kish is as a church, where you guys are individually. 
But of course, then we ask, how do we do that? How do we experience that growth if we feel stuck? And so I want to give from this text three encouragements on how to do that. Three ways to grow. The first is by imitating others. By imitating other people. In Philippians 3.17, Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So we in the modern world are bad at this idea because we, we have this sort of just me and Jesus mentality, right? And we actually get uncomfortable when Paul says, what you should do to be a Christian is imitate me. And here's the thing. There is a good caution we feel. Um, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul puts it slightly differently. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, right? So, so it is true spiritually that we should be seeking to imitate more mature Christians in as much as they are like Jesus— that's the good caution, right? So when we see those people doing things that don't fit with Jesus, we shouldn't imitate those things. But the main way we learn and grow is by watching people further along in the process and doing the things that they're doing and having them teach us and help us to learn how to grow. Again, that is just true of children. The way that they learn how to do anything is by watching their parents and other adults than by imitating what they're doing. I mean, a lot of childhood play is actually sort of training and practice. That's true of younger adults, too, right? That, I mean, as much as you can go to classes and learn things, the main way that everyone learns their jobs, I think most of us have had this experience, is by doing the job and seeing other people that know how to do the job do it, <laughs> right? And then kind of just imitating. I mean, I, like, I feel like I've figured out sort of over the years, like, my voice as a preacher, but I totally learned to preach early on just by being like, oh, here's some preachers I like. I'm going to try to sound like them, right? You know, that's, that's how you learn it. That's in any um, craft how you learn that growth. And that is true spiritually as well. It's why the end goal of the maturity process is to be a spiritual parent. Now, of course, that doesn't mean only those mature parent kind of Christians can help you. The truth is that you can find believers that are somewhat further along than you, right? I mean, a lot of childhood Christians help newborn Christians start to take ownership, and young adult Christians can help those childhood Christians. That's great. And often, there will be—it won't be as simple as having one person that's way further along than you in everything, but rather it's saying, like, I need to grow in this area, and here's a person that, you know, is further along than me in that area, so I'm going to try to learn from them. But we need to imitate others and learn from others if we're going to grow. Specifically, let me give you three things that we need to think about to do that. The first is that if that's going to happen, all of us need to break our bondage to purely private spirituality. We need to break the way in our culture. This is one of the things I think that just has wrecked the church. This, this way that, like, we do spirituality at church, right? Like, in, in big group worship. And then we do spirituality in our houses without anybody seeing it. So, so like prayer, right? Let, let's use prayer. I'm going to use prayer a couple times as our example here. We pray together at church. And I mean, absolutely, my hope is that as we pray together that we can grow in prayer. But you're not going to get a deep prayer life just from imitating what happens on Sunday morning. And everything else that happens is sort of purely private, right? Kind of in our brains. We don't even say it out loud for a lot of people. And it's, it's maybe with a spouse. Often it's purely alone. Private prayer is good. But my question is, how are people that don't know how to pray going to learn how to pray if they don't pray with us, right? If, if, you, if you're someone who does have an active prayer life, never prays with other people. And I don't mean just, Jesus, thank you for this food before meals either, right? I mean, 
I mean, I think about it a lot with my kids. I've really been trying more and more to, I mean, I've always prayed with them, but to intentionally involve them in my own personal prayer life. It's something that I've actually been convicted of and tried to grow over in these last years of praying more with other people. And it's something that I think all of us need to name for prayer and for other things, right? If all we ever do is read our Bible privately and we never sit down and open the Bible with somebody and talk with them about it, they're not going to learn how to read the scriptures. So we need to seek to do spirituality with other people, not just alone. And then particularly, two encouragements. First, if you are someone who's close to that spiritually mature spiritual parent category. I feel like a lot of us, because of humility, are just like, I'm, you know, we're uncomfortable saying that we're in that mature place. But, um, but if you're more on that end of thing, I would encourage you to seek out opportunities to invite people into your life and to give them that kind of example to imitate. And, and, and by that I mean just like, say, hey, you know, person, and frankly, this is often going to cross generational lines because of the way our world works, but to say to some person that you know who's not as far along spiritually, to say, hey, let's discuss Jesus. Let's read the Bible together. Let's pray together. Do that stuff I just talked about. And listen to me. I know what you're thinking, which is you're thinking that's going to be awkward, and they, um, and they're not going to want to do it. And here's the thing. One, you're probably wrong some of the time. People are more open to that than you think as someone who's learned to just be a lot bolder about just being like, hey, like, let's talk about this thing with people. But also, it doesn't matter. Like, if you're on that side of the spectrum, right, what, what, the thing that is hard for me sometimes is I'll see mature Christians say, I don't think anyone wants to learn from my maturity, and so I'm going to just let newborn Christians, it's going to be up to them. They're going to have to figure out that they need to grow and mature and then come and ask me to teach them. And I'm just like, they're not the people that understand that they need to grow. Like, you're the person who has a vision for that, so engage with that and invite people into that. Because you could be such a blessing in that. And at the same time, if you, if you think about that process of growth and you're like, I'm not very spiritually mature, I would also encourage you to seek someone to imitate and to ask them if you can kind of walk with them in those areas. And again, I know I just told them to ask you, but also if you just wait around for them to ask, right, it might not change. So for both sides, do that. If you're in that place, Christianity is not just a fake it till you make it kind of faith. So seek out people if you're in that less mature place who will help you grow. So imitate others. A second part of growth is disciplining ourselves. It is growing in our own discipline. In Philippians 3, Paul says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's there using repeatedly this language of effort and straining and striving. And he's using this language actually of a race or a marathon, which in 1 Corinthians 9 he expands upon. Paul says this there. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Thus, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So Paul says that the Christian life 
is like a race. And if you know someone who runs a race, like a real race, not, you know, like, not, not the sort of I'm going to walk my 5K, you know, that I've done in the past, but, you know, someone who's like really training for a marathon, you recognize that they have to think about their diet, exercise, and practice, and train, exercise real discipline. The place that Christian growth is different from biological growth is that it does not just happen with time, right? If you have a five-year-old and they get enough calories to survive and they don't, like, stick their fingers into too many electric outlets, right? But, you know, as long as, like, nothing really terrible happens, they will become a mature adult, at least biologically, uh, just as time passes. But that is not true spiritually. It is the reason that plenty of Christians can have been a Christian for decades and not have experienced spiritual growth. It's why Paul can critique, like he does the Corinthian church, and say, why are you still infants? The answer is that Christian growth takes work and practice and training. Which is to say, if I can return to that example of prayer, I said part of learning to pray is just finding people to teach you how to do it, and that is important, right? Maybe read books, but talk to people, even pray with people. But also then you're going to have to make a plan to actually do it yourself. (laughs) And that plan is going to have to be concrete, right? I mean, I don't know if you've experienced this, but just making the plan to pray more is not actually very effective, right? You need to say, here's what I'm going to do. It needs to be sort of doable and wise, right? If if you you don't know how to pray, don't start praying an hour a day because it's not going to happen, right? Like, think kind of incrementally about how you can grow and train in those things. It needs to be defined. You kind of make that plan, and then you have to do the work of doing it. And when you fall off the wagon and stop doing it, do the work of getting back on and seeking to do it again and grow in it. Christian growth actually, it has two sides to it, and you need both of them. Um, it, it, it has to involve the heart, and it has to involve habits. The heart is really important, and if you don't have the heart, you're just making Pharisees, right? It, right? You need a heart that knows and loves God and is growing closer to him and, you know, sees his beauty and that your heart is the thing that's driving it. But you do also then have to address the level of habits, because if you don't, You're going to just stay in the same ruts and stay doing the same things that you're doing. And you do have to kind of just work on those sort of like discipline and rhythm and stuff um, if you're also going to experience that growth and change. So imitate others, discipline ourselves. And then one last way to grow spiritually is to return to the foundations. To return to our foundations over and over. Paul sums up the process he's describing by saying, only let us hold true to what we have attained. So he says, grow, press on towards Jesus, but from another dimension, that means holding true to what we already have in him. Or again, 1 Thessalonians 4 sums it up. It's that you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, and you are doing it, and you do so more and more. Which is to say that when I talk about growth, you know, imitating and disciplines and all this stuff, I do not mean that you go discover some secret hidden thing, some new secret hidden thing, and that that's what spiritual growth means. That growing spiritually means that when you met Jesus, you got put on this path, that go, you know, that, that's heading towards Christ-likeness, and you keep walking forward on that same path, but you're walking forward ever since Jesus found you. And I say that because there's this huge temptation when we start to think about spiritual growth to focus only on sort of new things or only on 
you know, again, that, those spiritual secrets, or only kind of like trying to grow in this new area that we're weak rather than maintaining areas where we have been growing. And there's two issues with that. One is it just on the level of habits that's going to lead you to inconsistency. If you just say like, man, I've got this new prayer method that I'm going to really jump into, and that's the thing that you're chasing, and then you're like, oh, these other areas of my life aren't great. So now next year, I'm like, now I'm not good at this thing, so I'm going to stop praying, and I'm going to do this thing, and that won't work. But on a deeper level, the thing we need to recognize is that spiritual growth is not about moving on from the core things of Jesus and Christianity, but it's always about going deeper in them. If you remember a few weeks ago, um, we talked about glory, grace, and goodness as this sort of cycle that we move through in the Christian life. And you can go back and listen to that sermon. But I said there, in many ways, it is moving through that cycle of recognizing God's glory and majesty, and so being convicted of sin and experiencing his grace, and so being drawn and freed to obedience and growing in understanding and living in his goodness and then glorifying him again and moving through that cycle over and over but more and more deeply each time, that is the process of the Christian life. And those truths of God's glory and the beauty of his grace and the goodness of his ways, those are not step one on the Christian maturity process. Those are the things we return to over and over. So I'd ask you just to reflect on that too as we talk about spiritual growth, that rather than chasing after some new thing, I would just ask, are those truths still exciting to you? Right? The beauty of God's grace and his glorious majesty. Do those things still excite your heart? And if not, then the first step of growth is probably for you to return to those foundations again. Christianity is a journey that is about falling in love over and over with those same things you fell in love with at the beginning. So return to the foundations and do that. Do all of that. Because as we said at the beginning... Those, those truths and the Christian faith is a bottomless well that you can go eternally further up and further in. in. The ultimate reason that that lie that we have arrived is so tragic is this. It's that there is so much beauty and depth and wonder and power available to us as Christians that if we don't grow, and if we just buy that we're 95% of the way there, we end up missing those things. That invitation of Aslan to go further up and further into the children is an invitation to discover more and more wonder and beauty. And when we don't do that, we don't experience it, and over time we even lose our sense that those things are there to be experienced. It's like the kid who only wants to eat hot dogs. Or some other food. Did you ever have one of your kids, if you had kids, go through that experience where they've decided, I like, for, for one of mine it was mac and cheese, but like, I like this food, and so that's all that I want to eat. And anything that's not this food, I don't want to eat. And the thing about that is, of course, on one level, that is just unhealthy, right? And they need to eat other foods or they're going to have serious health problems. But on another level, it's also sad because the kid is actually missing out on the wonder of good food. Even good kid food, right? There's like pizza and hamburgers and stuff like that. And then, of course, as they grow, they discover all the fruits and vegetables and other just wonderful things to experience in the world. If all they ever eat is hot dogs, they've actually missed the beauty and goodness of that. Our problem as Christians is often that we've maybe only figured out that we like hot dogs. We've only tasted a little bit of Christianity but we think that that's enough 
And we don't have parents who will force us out of that. And yes, that is unhealthy, but what's even more tragic is that that keeps us from experiencing the deeper things of God. My first few years here at Kish, I would, um, I taught our confirmation class before Jordan took it over, and one of the things I would do near the end of the class is that I would take them into um, my office, and I would tell them to look at all the books in my office. And I would, I would always say, just look at all those books and understand that most of those books are about God. <laughs> and, I would, and then I would say, Here's, I'm showing you that for two reasons. One is that, um, you know, you're going to go to college someday and you're going to meet some smart per- people, you know, who have questions or challenges, and it's good for you to just know that there's thoughtful people that have engaged with these things and that you should go find some of these books if you have those questions. But two, and this is what I, I really want you to understand, I'm showing you these books because I want you to understand there's like 2,000 books about God on those shelves, and there's enough things about God to fill those 2,000 books. And in fact, there's enough truths about God and the Christian life to fill a million books, right? And I've read the bulk of those books, and I don't, uh, I'm just starting to discover things. And there's so much that I have to learn. And I want you to understand that, you eighth grade confirmation student, because you have no idea that there's that much stuff about God out there. And I want you to understand that there is that kind of depth there for you to pursue. And that is as true for us at whatever age we are as it was true for them in eighth grade. And not just about books, that there's so much truth and beauty of God and so much wisdom and depth in the Christian life that we have yet to discover that we can press further up and further into as we grow and follow after Jesus, that we have barely scratched the surface. And so don't settle. Don't believe the lie that you've arrived, but come further up and further in and discover those deeper things of God. Let me pray for us. Father God, may we not be content to play in the shallows. May we not be content with what is passing away. May we not be content with the little that we have tasted of you. But may we continue to grow and our appetites deepen. May we discover hidden delicacies of faith, the unexpected joys and wonders to be found in you. May we grow more and more to be conformed like Jesus and discover the shadowed sinful parts of our hearts and have them exposed to your light and be conformed more and more to to love you more, to love others more. Help us to grow, Lord. Become mature. To help others then to grow. May we be people that are ever pressing further upward and further inward into you and your ways for our whole lives that we might be prepared for the invitation then to do it for all of eternity. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.